0: So we're going to be in John chapter three, verses one through 10. But if I can remind you real quickly of where we come from, Uh, last week, Pastor Russell discussed the cleansing of the temple at the end of John chapter two. Not really sure how long uh, of a time period has transpired between that and our passage today, but it hasn't been that long, you would think. And, um, you know, talk about how that was a, a sign potentially to the people that there was the sign at the wedding, um and then that was potentially a sign, the only two two signs, which we'll see mentioned by Nicodemus in just a minute about how he'd seen those signs. But then there was a generalization of a group of people whose faith in Jesus was somehow lacking. Right, That they entrusted themse- entrusted Jesus, but he didn't entrust himself to them. That there was potentially some kind of intellectual faith that was not quite the same as truly following after Jesus. That there was something going on there. And I believe that we now have an example of that. That we go from the cleansing of the temple, a generalization of what it would look like for a person to see Jesus, believe in some part, trust in what he's doing and yet not fully trust him. And then we now have an example in Nicodemus of a man who is right then and there. And so there's a lot of details in the passage we're gonna look at. We're gonna try to break it down into three chunks so we can more easily digest it, right? We're gonna look at who Nicodemus was, who Nicodemus wasn't, and who Nicodemus became. Because like I said, he was on a faith journey and this was a milestone in his life. But let's read our passage for today and then we'll break it down. John chapter three, verses one through 10. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's where we're going to cut off today, and we'll continue next week, um, the rest of this, real, this conversation, because we don't exactly get shown when Nicodemus leaves. <laughs> it doesn't say Nicodemus exited stage right after a certain line in here. This is the last word from Nicodemus in this exchange with Jesus, but he likely is still talking to Nicodemus in the passage we're going to look at next week. But let's <clears throat> we'll start off with our big idea this morning. Rebirth is required in order to bring the dead to life. Rebirth is required in order to bring the dead to life. And if you'd like to be able to follow along with, um, with like a handout or notes version, that we do have one of those digitally on our, um, on our website if you wanna look up and, and follow along. Um, if not, we'll have some of the words up on the screen for you as well. But what we see is that Nicodemus walks up to Jesus, fully convinced that he knows who he is, and then everything gets turned upside down. <laughs> He walks up knowing who he was. He was not nobody. He was a somebody in that culture. And Jesus smacks him across the face with some truth. And he walks away going, how can these things be? And so first of all, who Nicodemus was. First, uh, under that, he was law abiding. He was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were known for being law-abiding, right? They were the most legalistic of the legalistic. They followed rules upon rules upon traditions upon rules upon scripture, right? They had all these extra rules to follow in addition to the rules that we see in the Old Testament because they wanted to make sure that they were earning their salvation properly. Nicodemus walked in feeling like he was exactly where he needed to be. That he wanted to hear about what this Jesus had to say, but he didn't think that there was any misconception about who he was with respect to God. He was law abiding. He was also a man of standing. Says he was a ruler of the Jews and later on a teacher of Israel. Likely, this is referring to him being a member of the Sanhedrin. But at the very least, we know that he was a man of standing in their religious society. So again, he wasn't a nobody. And in fact, if you were to ask Nicodemus, Nicodemus, um, can you make a list of people who clearly don't know who they are and aren't, the, aren't who they should be in front in the eyes of God, and he would make a long list and he would not put himself on it because he thought he knew exactly where he was. He was also pr- privately curious <clears throat> privately curious. It says he came to Jesus at night. Now there's debate on exactly what we should understand from this whole night business, right? Does, um, some people would say that this night, him coming to Jesus at night, shows that he was a coward, that he was so fearful of being seen with Jesus that he had to come at night. Maybe. from the the passage, you can read it for yourself again, that, that we don't know that for sure. It doesn't say he cowardly came to Jesus at night. That's one possibility. It's also possible that Jesus was always surrounded by so many people during the day that he wanted a private conversation with them, that he wanted to come and ask some questions of Jesus and potentially have a better conversation that he wouldn't have been able to have during the day. He could have just not in fear, but in curiosity, right? Did want to come without the eyes of people around, but really just because he wanted to have that kind of intimacy in that conversation with Jesus. There's, a, there, there's some different options we can go with here. And I don't know how you picture this in your mind. You know, if, if you're like me, which maybe it's good if you're not, but um, if, you, if you're like me, you have like a mental picture when you're reading stuff like this. Like when you're um, listening to talk radio or something, you might have a picture of the person that, whose voice it is, but then sometimes you find out, wow, that person looks nothing like what I thought they did. Or you recognize a voice and you look over, and I'm like, well, that's, that can't be the right person. That's not, who they, that's not what they look like. Well, my mental picture in here, and I could be wrong, but maybe it'll help us under, uh, see it in a proper way. I have no idea. My picture is of like an old Western <clears throat> Don't know why, it's just a picture in my head. My picture is of Jesus kind of sitting in a campfire, just chilling with the disciples, eating some peanuts. I don't know why peanuts, it's just the picture in my head, okay? Like I said, I could be wrong, but we know he comes to him at night. He might be outside, when we look at the wind, there might have been a gust of wind that actually happened where he was. But I don't know if you develop those, those pictures in your mind, but I do think it kind of helps us understand the scene a little bit, because all we have here is the words, And so to try to understand and really develop the full context of our understanding of scripture, sometimes it helps us to picture it. And Russell did a great job of that last week with the temple, laying out exactly what the sights and sounds and even smells would have been in the temple before it was cleansed. And so Jesus is here with his disciples and Nicodemus comes up to him in private curiosity. We don't even really know for sure whether or not he was alone. He could have had a small group of friends with him. Doesn't say. But he comes to him in private curiosity and he is respectful, is the next one. He's respectful. He says rabbi and teacher to him. Some people have tried to say that it, that's a, it's sarcasm, but I don't think there's really any reason to take it as sarcasm. He comes to him as leader to leader, right? Teacher to teacher. Because I'm sure Nicodemus had a healthy perspective of who he was. And he says rabbi and teacher we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. There's some form of acknowledgement here, and I guess the reason for his curiosity and his, and his trip to Jesus to figure out who exactly is this guy. He's talking about these signs here, and most likely he's referring to the signs of the cleansing of the temple. The Pharisees would not, have actually, not exactly have been upset with Jesus when he cleansed the temple, the Pharisees probably would have been privately or even vocally rooting him on because the Sadducees, who they were at odds with in this internal struggle, the Sadducees were the ones who controlled the temple. The Pharisees were the ones who who kind of prided them on being the the, um, people of the people, right, and uh, and very um, law-abiding. And these Sadducees are the ones who have let the temple get out of control. And so they might have been cheering on Jesus as he cleansed this temple. And so... Nicodemus walks up to Jesus not being upset with him about cleansing the temple. He might be even hopeful that this man might be the Messiah, and the Messiah is a Pharisee. He's one of us. He's coming, and he's cleansed this temple, and he's he's trying to renew this, and who is this man that is doing these things? We know he must have come from God because clearly he's a Pharisee. Not officially, but clearly along the lines, right? And so this is who Nicodemus was. He was also open to a dialogue. He appears to be legitimately, intellectually curious about who Jesus was, why he was there, and why he was doing what he was doing. And this was early in the ministry, so he did not have much to go, off, go on at this time. Nicodemus didn't realize that who he also was was a sinner and dead in those sins. He didn't realize that he needed to be reborn into life. And Jesus doesn't waste any time getting into it. You know, I often read the exchanges Jesus has with people and I try to see it from if I was just standing there and what I would have thought when he responds the way he does. Not sinfully, but sometimes he just like smacks them right off the bat. Sometimes he, he asks a question to get down into the, to the depth of what they really are, are getting at. Sometimes he, reads their, he knows their thoughts, right? He, and he responds to what they're thinking and not even what they're saying. His interactions with people are amazing to read. Other times, you know, there's one where he um, talks about being the, the bread of life and says some interesting things about body and, and blood. And then his disciples are like, you know, that sounded a little bit odd. How in the world are we supposed to understand that? And he does not respond he hasn't with, oh, you, you know, let me explain it to you. He goes, Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And you're like, Wait, what? He's not wrong in what he's saying. He's very interesting in, in what he says. And he can be because he knows what's going on. He already knows who Nicodemus was before he walked up. So he knows Nicodemus is there to try to understand is he the Messiah? Is he the one bringing in this kingdom? And Jesus jumps right into it. He says this in verse three. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He plays a bit of a word game right off the bat. You see, Nicodemus said, we can see that you've come from God because we've, or we can know you come from God because we have seen what you've done. And Jesus says, yeah, you claim to have seen some things, but you can't even see the kingdom unless you're born. And he uses this word, um, anothen, which can mean again, or it can mean from above. More accurately, for those of us who are reading it this far removed, we can know that he's really saying reborn from above. Nicodemus gets a little confused. See, Nicodemus is thinking, well, as he walks up, I am hoping that this guy might be the Messiah, potentially, and that as if he is, he's going to be ushering in an earthly kingdom, setting us free from the power of the Romans, and I will be part of this kingdom. And Jesus says, you can't even see the kingdom unless you've been reborn from above. But obviously Nicodemus takes it as again here. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be reborn? And so when we go from he cannot see salvation so he could not experience salvation as Jesus responds here and kind of doubles down on what he's saying to Nicodemus. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is Spirit. Now, if you really want to understand kind of more about the, the water and the spirit there, I want to be I'm talking about that in our Beyond the Notes edition of our podcast tomorrow. So if you want to listen to that, we'll, we'll go into a little more detail. For, for, the, for our purposes this morning, we understand that he is talking about being reborn spiritually. And he says here in verse, in verse six that the flesh is, gives birth to flesh and the spirit gives birth to spirit. He's acknowledging this fact that we have like a, a kind of a twofold nature as humans that we have a flesh and we have a spirit or or soul, another term used for that. And that to see the kingdom, to enter the kingdom, we must be reborn from above spiritually. And Nicodemus, I I think is just honestly thrown for a loop when he thinks Jesus is saying you need to be born again to enter the kingdom. And he's starting to think, think in his mind, well, what in the world, how in the world does an adult get reborn? but that's not what Jesus was talking about. He doubles down and he says, no, you need to understand that you need to be reborn from above. Spirit gives life to spirit. Flesh gives life to flesh. And the only way you can see salvation, the only way you can experience salvation is if you are made alive, essentially through him, although that he hasn't done that yet. <laughs> For those of us today, it's pretty clear that we understand that the only way that we can enter into the kingdom, that we can see the kingdom, is as those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And Nicodemus didn't get this. He was, yes, he was curious. He was he was right there. He he wanted to get it, but he could not quite get it. At least not yet. So reborn from above is what is necessary to bring the dead to life. He didn't realize he was dead and needed to be brought to life. The third thing here we see in verses seven and eight, he couldn't comprehend salvation. He couldn't comprehend it, not fully. That's kind of like, like a, I get it, but I don't get it. Yeah, I, I understand, but what, wait, What? And we, and we have those moments in our lives sometimes. And, and Jesus is saying, this is what it's like for those who have not been reborn when they try to understand what it is to be reborn. He says this in verse seven and eight. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. See, like I said, in my mental picture, he's, he's outside. We don't know that he's in a building and potentially there's a, a gust of wind that comes blowing through. And Jesus uses that moment to draw an illustration between that, the way that the wind works and the way that the spirit works. That just like Nicodemus couldn't understand where that wind came from or really where it was going, but he saw the effects of the wind. He could not argue that the fact that wind had just brushed through, that that was essentially how a a non-reborn person sees the work of the Spirit. That the Spirit is unpredictable and undeniable at the same time. That we can't fully grasp what's going on, but we can look around and we can see the effects of what the Spirit is doing. Part of what makes it hard to understand this illustration that Jesus uses and and kind of how deep do we dive into it is because of the word, uh, the Greek word pneuma that's used there for wind and spirit. It's the same word. And so commentators are trying to figure out, well, okay, exactly what um, direction is he trying to go with this? Is is the spirit the wind? Or or which part's the spirit, which part's the wind? And trying to figure it out. It can get confusing a little bit. But the gist is, that those who are not reborn cannot fully comprehend. And it's similar to what we see in in a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter one. It says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, as he just mentioned the signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For those outside of the church, for those who have not been reborn, they can understand the some of the dynamics, right? They understand that we say Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins. They understand that we say that somehow paid for our sins and atoned for um, what we really deserve. And yet at the same time, it's, I get it, but I don't get it. I can't fully understand it. And it, you know, it, it's grad Sunday this morning. And so it, it's fitting for us to, I think, ask the question of the family itself of do our lives look like that to others? For those of us who have been reborn from above in the Spirit, do we look different from those around us? Is there something that causes someone else who's not reborn from above to look at our lives and say, I just don't get them? Why? Because if you don't confuse non believers by your life, why not? If, that's, if you don't look that much different in the way that you live, maybe you haven't been reborn from above. Because we understand that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We have not been um, renewed in the flesh, but we've been renewed in the spirit and we look different because of the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, I have the, the privilege sometimes and, and the joy to talk with students as they're desiring to go to get de- baptized or join the church. And uh, I love hearing their story as a part of that. And I met with one young man recently and he was telling me that part of his story involved that he saw a difference in his mom. That at one point they were going to a different church that was not teaching the gospel. They came to McGregor and heard the gospel here. His mother responded to the gospel, put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ and her life looked so much different to him that it made an impact in his life. That's the way it's supposed to be. In our families, do our children see a difference? I understand parents and grandparents are flawed just as I am. Do they see a difference in our lives? I want to. I want to show you a picture. You know, I grew up playing soccer, and um, you know, I, I I wanted to play soccer. My parents found a team for me. They um, they found a coach, you know, that could, that could teach me soccer, and they took me there. And I don't know if you can tell which one's me. <clears throat> I was a couple of years younger, as my defense for why I'm so much smaller than the rest of them. But um, the uh, you know, they, they found the team that could actually train me up in soccer. Makes sense, right? My dad didn't know a whole bunch about soccer. He didn't really, um, you know, he had no biblical mandate to teach me soccer. Um, And so they found a team and a coach to train me up in soccer. The problem all too often is that we view the church the same way. And listen, I'm standing up here as one of those coaches. Right? I lead our student ministry. I oversee our preschool and children's ministries. And I believe there is a lot of value in those ministries and we can elevate discipleship in the lives of our families and our children. But we are not a replacement. We are not where discipleship starts. When you ask those who have um, graduated from high school and continued in the faith, continued in an active involvement in a church, those, that smaller percentage of students, what has led to this? The top reasons have to do with the faith of their parents, not the ministry of the church. It's so easy to just say, why isn't the student ministry doing more? And listen, our ministry is not perfect by any stretch. I will readily admit to that. We try to seek and seek to raise up disciple makers and partner with parents in that. And we're gonna try and do a better job moving forward as a family ministry of better partnering with you as parents and helping you see what discipleship in the home can look like. Because I know that for my generation at least, it's not that we've turned away from something we learned. It's that this has been a problem for a long time. That we, we grew up, many of us in families that the only time we talked about Jesus or the only time we looked at the Bible was on Sundays. And yes, there was a mandate, you're coming to church on Sunday, but then it didn't make a difference during the week. The visibility with which we live out our faith in front of our children makes a difference. I said last time when when I spoke up here that if we want our children to be about Jesus, we have to be about Jesus. Obviously, God's at work in their hearts and we're not taking that job away from him, but we do have a role. And I would encourage you as as families in this room, if you're a parent or a grandparent, increase your level of modeling of your faith for your kids. They're watching, they're hearing what you say and they're watching what you do. You are discipling them every moment. (laughs) Where are you discipling them to? And like I said earlier though, the, the, the ministries do have a role and we would love to partner with you in the ministry world as well. In fact, my dad was one of those coaches on the screen because he wanted to be involved with me on that team even though he didn't really know much <laughs> about how to do it in terms of soccer, right? But we, would lo- we need the body of Christ to step up and contribute the spiritual giftings that we have been given to this body. We are weaker without it. And so this visual of the wind, you can't see it, you can't predict it, but you can see the effects of it. It needs to be seen in our lives. And I think we also see a little bit of it in the life of Nicodemus. As we look through the rest of of John, we see Nicodemus pop up two more times. And we see what Nicodemus became or who Nicodemus became we're gonna look at it briefly. I don't wanna um, steal some teaching points from those guys that are gonna be covering these passages in the future, but this is actually the only gospel that mentions Nicodemus by name, and it happens in these three instances. So the first one is what we are looking at just now, that he converses with Jesus in John chapter three, one and through 10, like we just talked about. And he leaves this conversation thinking, how can these things be in verse nine? And yet we see him pop up again in John chapter seven. Which says, the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him, being Jesus? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law is a curse. They say, but have any of us believed? And Nicodemus shows back up who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Nicodemus could have kept his mouth shut. Apparently he didn't. Apparently he said, shouldn't we hear him out? Similarly to how he had sought out Jesus to hear him out. We see a third instance. He cares for the crucified body of Jesus in John chapter 19. We, you know, we remember that Joseph of Arimathea was involved, but you know what? Nicodemus was there too. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, for the crucified body of Jesus. I think we see these three milestones and I think that we likely can surmise that he came to faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know where you walked into this building at. I don't know how many faith milestones you've taken. I don't know if you're at the curiosity point. I don't even know if you've, maybe you haven't even gotten to the curiosity point. You're here because you have to be. And you think everything I just said was complete nonsense and foolishness. Well. According to 1 Corinthians, you've got company. Maybe you're curious. I would encourage you to continue in that curiosity. People have been trying to tear down the truth of Scripture since it was written and it's still standing. Your scrutiny will not destroy it. If it is true, it will stand. And I don't know if you've moved closer to putting your faith in Jesus, but I pray you don't leave here today without it. That if you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, do not leave this campus without talking to someone that can explain to you exactly how that works. Because you're dead in your sins. And the only way to enter the kingdom is through being reborn from above.